Hey there, my name is Roy and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And today you've joined us for the first part of our new series, our Christmas series called The Light. As the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. This is the case for, for many people. Uh, there's something about Christmas music playing throughout all the stores, houses decorated, the excitement in the eyes of children, good cheer in the air, and just snow on the ground. It's, it's, a, it's a magical type of time of year. There's something about Christmas that's just, it's different than any other time of the year. In fact, this is the time of year that sometimes even the deadliest of wars come to a truce or a ceasefire. Fire. They stop in the midst of Christmas. Most famously is the Christmas truce of World War I, where British and French soldiers paused the war to exchange gifts with German soldiers out in the, the middle of the field. And that sort of friendliness later was frowned upon by both sides. Fraternizing with the, the enemy was not, not seen as, as a good thing. However, there is a story from World War II that some of you, it might represent your family dinners at Christmas. In 1944, American soldiers were fighting against uh, a major German offensive in, the, in Belgium in the, the region of the Ardennes Forest. The battle waged for weeks, and on Christmas Eve, three soldiers, American soldiers, found themselves lost and cold and hungry and, and, and trying to get back to the American line. And they found themselves in the Ardennes woods. The problem was one of the soldiers was badly wounded, and they struggled to find their way through the snow-covered forest with gunshots and artillery in the background ringing out everywhere. And that's when they came up across a small log cabin. Inside the cabin was Elizabeth Vinken and her 12-year-old son Fritz. The Vinkins had been bombed out of their home in Germany and had retreated to this small hunting cabin in the forest for safety. Fritz's father had stayed behind and, and worked so he could provide for the family and he would come when it was safe, but those trips sometimes were far and few between. There was a hope that he would be home for Christmas. So when the Vinkins heard a knock on the door, they thought their prayers had been answered. But instead, to their surprise and their terror, standing on the other side of the door were two American soldiers and one laying in the snow wounded. And they were armed. Now, Elizabeth realized they could have burst in, but they didn't. They knocked, and so she invited them in to sit and warm up, and that she would prepare them dinner while they warmed up. Now, communication between the Vinkins and the American soldiers was tough because Elizabeth and Fritz, they didn't speak English, and the Americans didn't speak German. But they both knew enough broken French to be able to communicate. So Fritz went and he gathered the potatoes and he fetched the rooster and that they were saving for their family Christmas dinner. And while the soldiers warmed up, the meal was cooking. And that's when there was another knock at the door. Perhaps more wounded American soldiers. So as Fritz opened the, the door, he realized it was four German armed soldiers. Elizabeth rushed through knowing that the, that, that the, the 
uh, punishment for harboring the enemy was execution. She rushed past Fritz to, to cut them off and explain to them that, uh, that, that, that inside there were some others. And these four young men, these Germans, three of them being teenagers, they were the same as the Americans in the fact that they were cold, they were lost, and they were hungry. So Elizabeth welcomed them inside but reminded them that there are already guests and they're not considered friendly. The corporal asked if it was Americans that were actually inside and Elizabeth explained that like them, they, yeah, they, they are also lost, they are also cold, and they're also hungry. And one of them is wounded. The corporal thought about it for a moment and replied, It is the holy night. There will be no shooting here. Elizabeth insisted they leave their weapons outside and hesitantly they complied, a little nervously. Elizabeth then went and gathered all the Americans' weapons and stacked them next to the German weapons outside the door. Now, understandably, there was a lot of fear and a lot of tension in the cabin as the Americans and the Germans eyed each other, staring back at one another. But the warmth of the fire and the smell of rooster and potatoes, well, that seemed to calm the nerves a little bit. One of the Germans was an ex-medical student, and he, he attended to the Americans' wound. And that by now, the atmosphere had completely relaxed. As Elizabeth said grace over the meal, there were tears in the eyes of both the Americans and the German soldiers. And this truce lasted all night and into the morning. And as they gathered their things to leave, the German corporal gave the Americans a map and a compass and showed them how to get back to the American line and even showed them which cities not to go into because they had been conquered by the Germans. Both parties thanked their hosts, and they headed off in separate directions, and as soon as they were out of sight of each other, the truce was over. Christmas can bring out the best in people. But during Christmas season, while you desire the best, there can be an underlying tension that you start thinking about weeks in advance. Because you know that if you invite this person then there's a good chance this person's not going to come. And if you invite this person, they're, they're bound to say something that's going to upset somebody because they do it every year, and this person drinks too much, and this person always starts a debate or an argument. And so while you want Christmas to be a memorable one, you're afraid it'll be memorable for all the wrong reasons. Maybe in your family you feel like you're Elizabeth Vinken. All you want was a peaceful Christmas dinner and now in your home is tension. And the issues are often, they're not new. They, they go back so many years that the tension, they don't even know what the argument started about. And you also know that this argument or this tension or this animosity, well, it's not going to be solved in one day over one meal in the few hours you have together. And even though the guests have agreed they're going to lay down their weapons, you still worry. You worry because it all could change in one moment. And so you remind everyone, it is the holy night. There will be no shooting here. Now, at this point, you're either thinking one of two things. You're either thinking, yes, that's exactly the tension that I'm dealing with, and thanks for reminding me, Pastor Roy. Or you're thinking, that's not my situation, and I'm so glad it isn't. But Christmas... 
can be complicated. As much as the greatest time of year, it can be complicated. And if yours is not, that is fantastic. I hope it is always that way because it truly is the most wonderful time of year. But it's not necessarily the most wonderful time of year because of what's happening or what could happen around us. It's the most wonderful time of year because of what has already happened. We celebrate during this season because God sent his son to earth to save the world from our own sin. That God saw the darkness that existed in our world and he made a way to reconcile us with him. By putting my faith and by putting your faith in Jesus, not only am I assured of heaven, but I now have something and someone I can center my life around. I now have a filter that I can run every decision that's tough to make through. I have someone that I can cling to when the world around me doesn't make a lot of sense. Christmas is a reminder that we're not alone. That no matter who is with us or not with us during Christmas, Emmanuel, God is with us. God is for us. He's the light in the darkness. That's why Christmas is the most wonderful time of year. If you've opened a Bible lately, or ever opened a Bible, chances are at some point you've settled on one of the four Gospels. We, we read, this is where we read about Jesus and the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, are, they have a lot of parallels. They tell a lot of the same stories. And, but John's account of, of Jesus' life is very different. See, unlike Matthew and, and Luke, John doesn't jump into his Gospel with the, the birth story. He doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. When John sits down to write his gospel, he's an old man by this time. Biblical historians believe that John wrote his gospel last. And of course, it wasn't like he was just sitting down trying to recall some old stories from 30, 35 years ago. One, one of, as one of Jesus' disciples, John would be very popular wherever he went, even after Jesus was gone. Wherever he went among Christians, they would all constantly be asking him, tell me, John, tell me the story of, tell me about the time that Jesus healed, healed a blind man. Tell me about the time that he raised a man from the tomb. John, were you, when you were with Jesus, what was he like? When he said this, what did he mean? And he would go on and on telling these stories over and over again. And his audience would always be hanging off every word. So at some point, John decides, I'm going, to, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write these down because I want them to be passed on for generations. And, and not be heard from people who heard it secondhand, who maybe heard it thirdhand, and then twist them to meet their agenda. But I want, the, I want them to hear directly from me an eyewitness account. And the reason why John is a voice worth listening to is because of what John had experienced. What had John had seen in his life before Jesus, during Jesus, and after Jesus. John saw light walk amongst the dark. And he came to this conclusion, very simply, that God is love. Based on what I've seen in the middle of all this darkness, I've come to the conclusion that God is love. In the years that passed after Jesus had left them, John experienced some very trying times. You would, you would think that following Jesus would all of a sudden make your life easy. John's life was an example that his life actually got harder. He watched as many of his friends had been executed for their faith. He lost family members. He, he, 
he had been part of a faith family that were persecuted and constantly on the run. John was alive during the Jewish-Roman War. Now, in Jewish-Roman War, you won't find this in the Bible, but historians have documented what happened in the, the years following after John had written his, his, his gospel. Tensions ran high in Jerusalem. And this is around 30 years after Jesus' death. And the Jews began to rebel against the, the Roman government, first in small ways, and, but then in bigger, bigger ways, more deadly ways. And, and then after the Roman guards, they breached the temple at one point and took the temple silver, which they claimed to be a Roman tax all of a sudden. Well, the, the rebels and the zealots had had enough. They began to resort to violence to drive the Roman government out of their land. In 67 AD, Emperor Nero ordered General Vespasian to lead an army into Galilee and crush the rebellion. John watched as an estimated 100,000 Jews from Jesus' home province were either murdered or captured and made slaves that would serve in Rome or maybe the mines in Egypt. John watched as the Roman army set its sights on Jerusalem and eventually slowly moved in. Jerusalem, a place that held precious memories for John. Jerusalem was the place where he, he watched as Jesus healed people, as Jesus taught. He, he watched as this became a, a, a center place for the Jewish religion. And Jerusalem's walls did he. A great job of keeping the Romans out. So under the leadership of Titus, Vespasian's son, they sent more armies in and they built a trench around Jerusalem. A deep trench and then they built a wall outside that trench. And they decided that if they couldn't get in, they would make sure no one ever got out. Anyone who would attempt to leave would be captured, killed, and crucified. Historians estimated that up to 500 people a day would be crucified trying to escape. They would take those that tried to escape and they would crucify them at the top of the wall facing inwards towards Jerusalem as a, as a sign, as a warning. For seven months, they stood at a stalemate. Inside, things were starting to fall apart. People were dying of starvation. And eventually, Rome broke through a wall and overtook the Jews, burned the temple to the ground, one million Jews would be slaughtered, while hundreds of thousands more were later taken as slaves. By the time John had put ink to paper, Peter was killed. Paul was killed. Everything in his world had been changed. Everything had been destroyed. But despite all the spilled blood, despite all the pain that came with it, despite all the frustration and the discouragement, John never lost his faith. And so he sits down and he writes his gospel. And near the end, he writes, lays out his purpose for writing. He says in John 20, 30, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Despite the fact that John has witnessed all of this in his lifetime, the destruction of almost everything, almost everywhere, and almost everyone that, set, that mattered to him the most, 
He still holds to this belief that Jesus is the doorway to a better life and that he is the one that offers hope to a world that is hopeless. And John wants you to experience that hope as well. So it's interesting to note that as John sits down to write this manifesto, this, this document, it's interesting to know, note how he opens up his gospel. He doesn't open with Jesus' birth story like some of the other gospel writers. And the reason why this is so interesting is because when Jesus is dying on a cross, he looks down and he sees Mary and John down below him, close enough to be able to, to speak to. And he tells John to take Mary as his mom and take care of her all his days. And he tells Mary to take John as her son. And so John, over the course of his life, spends a lot of time at Mary's side. There's some evidence that John was with her right up until her, her dying day, likely in Ephesus. And so because of the amount of time that he spent with her, directly with her, John would have access to the source of the virgin birth story. He would have been able to ask her questions like, Mary, how did you feel when the angel appeared to you? What was it like to know that you were going to carry the Son of God? What was it like when you found out and people found out that you were pregnant and yet you were engaged and you were not pregnant to the child of the one that you were engaged to? What was that like? What, what was it like when you, when you came to Bethlehem and there was no place for you? What was it like to give birth in a stable? He, he would have access to the details that nobody else would. Yet he doesn't even mention the birth story. He doesn't begin with an angel appearing to a teenage girl. He, just, he doesn't begin with a census. He doesn't begin with shepherds or a star in the sky. He would, have had, he would have heard this story of Jesus' birth more than anyone. Yet when John sits down to write his gospel, he begins by jumping straight to the significance of this baby boy. John now is at this point in his life, he's had, he's had some time to hash out his thoughts. He's able to step back and see everything for what it is. And, and he writes this. And it's a dark time in his world as he writes it. And he, but as he writes it, he's reminded of what a dark world it was that Jesus was born into. That's why it's important to put this in perspective at Christmas. Because Christmas can be complicated. While it's said to be the most wonderful time of year, you might be feeling a little bit of anxiety around your own personal situation, your own family situation. And now you throw in the mix of COVID. And that just complicates things a little bit more. A devotional that I read in prayer meeting recently uh, commented that the, uh, experts say that these events that we're facing right now are probably the most sustained and serious stress many of us will face in our lifetime. And John would say, I understand what it's like to feel overwhelmed by the world around you. But let me tell you what got me through. And so John starts his gospel by jumping straight to the chase. Into a dark world, here's who this baby was. And John 1.4 says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. See, this statement by itself is huge. 
Because if John had sat down to write this, the opening to his gospel shortly after Jesus had called him to follow, he would not have wrote this. If John was keeping a diary of what happened, if you went through the initial pages of his diary, he would never say this. Because the apostles and Jesus' followers believed that Jesus was sent for Israel. That the Messiah was sent for the Jews. But now as an old man, John sits back and he says, I realize now. I realize that Jesus didn't just come for us. It was far, far bigger than that. Jesus came for all mankind. He brought life and he brought light to all humanity. John believed at one point that Jesus was going to be the one who led a rebellion against the Romans. That he had come to give leadership to a mission to free Israel and restore the Jews to their rightful spot as the world power. Even right up to the end, when Jesus has died, he's come back to life, and he's about to leave them for the final time. They pressed him, Jesus, Jesus, is it now? Is it now that you're going to restore Israel? And Jesus tells them, stop worrying about that. Your job, your job is to take this light. Your job is to take this message of good news to all the ends of the earth. Stop thinking so small. Stop thinking this is a local mission. Stop thinking this is a Galilee thing. Stop thinking this is an Israel thing. This light, this light isn't a Jewish light. This light is a light for all people. Take it to the ends of the earth. And then John says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, John writes this despite the fact that darkness has tried to win over and over. See, when a light shines in the dark, there's less dark, but there's still darkness. There's still shadows. But this light, this light was so bright. And although it tried, darkness could not overcome it. When John's friends were executed, the light shone brighter. When the temple was destroyed, the light shone brighter. When it looked like everything in his world had been lost or destroyed, darkness could not overcome the light. Caesar couldn't do it. Nero couldn't do it. The death of Jesus didn't do it. Every time they tried to snuff out the light, it shone brighter. John had seen many things. He'd watched with his own eyes blind men have their sight restored, dead men raised from their sleep. His best friend nailed to a cross, put in a tomb only to discover a short time later that he'd done what he said he'd do, rise again. He'd suffered loss. He'd suffered persecution. He'd witnessed unspeakable pain and destruction. And yet as he reflects on his life and his experiences, he begins to write the significance of this baby boy. Light had come to the world, and this light was for all the world. And no matter what happened, no matter what happens, darkness cannot overcome it. And so this Christmas, perhaps you're, you are feeling that, that anxiety is very real of visiting family or hosting others. And it's not really letting you enjoy this upcoming Christmas season because your mind keeps wandering back there. 
Because you're reminded that there are issues that you can't solve in one day. You're reminded there are people you can't control. That no matter how gracious you are, no matter how many times you try to hash it out, no matter how many times you try to get them to see it your way, there just doesn't seem to be hope of a breakthrough. There will be expectations that you just won't seem to be able to meet. It just seems like these underlying tensions can make Christmas shine a little less bright. John would remind you in the midst of all that angst and all that darkness that Jesus is the life and the light that can overcome all darkness. In a small wooden cabin, two groups of enemies, enemies trained to kill one another, were able to put down their weapons, set aside their differences, set aside their animosity, set aside their biases, and because they recognized that there was a light, a light that had come for all the world, not, not an American light, not a Jewish light, not a German light, a light for all nations, all tongues. And what makes this the most wonderful time of year is not based on what is going to happen or what doesn't happen or who comes or who doesn't come. It's all entirely based on what has already happened. 2,000 years ago, the light of the world stepped onto the earth. And darkness, no matter how dark it felt, no matter how dark it feels, cannot overcome it. Not then, not now, not ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into this Christmas season, we can get pretty caught up in what we have to do, what needs to be done, and also get caught up in worrying about uh, different family situations and, and tensions and unresolved issues. Um, God, it can feel like it, we, we, we've lost the actual focus of where it should be, that 2,000 years ago, light came into this world, and nothing would ever be the same. And so, God, I pray that as we um, go about this season and we keep our eyes focused on that, focused on the light, that because of you sent your son to this earth, we have hope, we have peace, we have joy, and we have someone that we can center our entire lives around. God, we thank you for your son. We ask this in your name. Amen.